Before I came to Rome, a man in his middle age made an appointment with me. He was, he was not from my parish, so I was a little surprised that he wanted to meet with me instead of his local priest. He told me that he had difficulties with his younger son. The older son was athletic, handsome, a ladies' man, but his younger son, he said, was a little more effeminate. He said that he wanted advice on how he should interact with the younger son to show him love and to help him to grow up to be a mature young man. Well, six months went by, and the father met with me again, and he told me that his son was now at the university. The dad was concerned because his son started to practice ballet, and he was majoring in psychology. And at this university, it was in name Catholic, but this Catholic university did not support the church's moral position. Six months or nine months went by, I met with the father again. And now the father said he's even more concerned because he noticed that his son started to wear his sister's clothing. And he said that his son admitted that he had a homosexual roommate, but the son said that he was not gay. A year went by and the father met with me again. He said that this time, now his son wanted to be called by a girl's name. And the son said that he felt lonely because his girlfriend broke up with him. And the son said, I'm not gay, I want my girlfriend, but I want to have long hair and to be called by a woman's name. Finally, after about two or three years of meeting with the father, the son came to my office to talk. He had long hair, he was dressed like a woman, and he said to me, I am not homosexual, but I feel like I am in the wrong body. Now, how should I have responded to the father, and how should I respond to this young man? This is a question that is becoming more and more present, not only in the Anglo-sphere, but also here in Portugal. I have been told that now it is legal for someone who is 16 years of age to receive hormonal treatment, to start to transition from one gender into another, and yet you can't drive until you're 18. So what's happening? And, and how do we as Catholics respond to these very difficult, very difficult situations? Well, in our day, many gender theorists would say that the appropriate response to a, a young man like this is to help him, quote, transition into a new way of being, that he should have some of these hormonal treatments, receive estrogen and progesterone, so that way he can start to develop seemingly female anatomy. And such would have been, and often was in fact, the advice of a psychologist named John Money. Now, Money is considered to be a grandfather of the transgender movement. And he's credited with inventing the term, in fact, gender identity and gender role, and for popularizing the term sexual orientation as distinguished from sexual 
preference. Orientation seems to be more involuntary, whereas preference implies some degree of choice. Recalling an abusive and violent father who had a powerful negative effect on him, John Money was briefly married, he had no children, and yet throughout most of his life he worked with gender and sex issues. And he argued that the behaviors of male and female are arbitrary straitjackets that end up harming society. Early in his life, he spent six years studying intersexuals. An intersexual is a person who is born with ambiguous genitalia. In 1955, here's what Money wrote. Quote, sexual behavior and orientation as male or female does not have an innate instinctive basis. In place of a theory of instinctive masculinity or femininity, which is innate, the evidence lends support to a conception that psychologically, sexuality is undifferentiated at birth, and it becomes differentiated as masculine or feminine in the course of various experiences of growing up. Wielding this theory like a club, Money convinced many physicians in John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, close to Washington, D.C., to start to perform these hormonal and even surgical treatments on people who had ambiguous genitalia, and then later on, people who said that they had the wrong body. Of course, since this was the 1950s and 60s, usually what happened was they shaped little boys to look like girls. It was very difficult to do the other way around. And so usually you had a feminization of boys. He claimed that out of 131 patients, more than 95% were psychologically and socially well-adjusted whether they were raised as a boy or a girl. And so the conclusion remained the same. He said, quote, these children were born wholly undifferentiated in terms of their psychological sex. They formed a conception of themselves as masculine or feminine through culture. And so, in his view, the modern world renders anachronistic this, what he calls a stereotyping of different sexual roles. Now, for many of our contemporaries, especially uh, in uh, the United States, in Canada, in England, the response of gender theory is the compassionate response. Many people that say that this is what we ought to be doing. Uh, I think we also find this in northern countries in Europe more so than those uh, further south. So they say that when a person experiences this gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria is a discomfort and a feeling that there's something wrong with one's external anatomy, that, well, what should happen is psychological treatment, hormonal treatment, and then eventually surgery. So the question is for us then, how should we as Catholics respond to this? Now, we can offer a lot of different ways to approach it. Perhaps one could give uh, counter-narratives, stories about various people, or one could look at the political tactics of the gender movement and notice that there's certain um, uh, tactics that they have in common, actually, with political parties. 
Here, what I would like to do is first notice that to the surprise of many, Pope Francis has repeatedly condemned what he calls the gender ideology. Here's one quotation. Pope Francis says, in Europe, America, Latin America, Africa, and in some countries of Asia, there are genuine forms of ideological colonization taking place. And one of these, I will call it clearly by its name, is the ideology of gender. Pope Francis continues, today, children, children, are taught in school that everyone can choose his or her own sex. These forms of ideological colonization are also supported by influential countries, and this is terrible. I looked at a study of Pope Francis talking about gender theory. He's condemned it at least eight times publicly. Very interesting. As I said, it surprised a number of people. And what I would like to do is to address gender theory from a biological and from a philosophical and finally a theological context. And I'm going to show that actually one of our allies in responding to gender theory is none other than John Money himself. His own research into the biology, the physiology of male and female will help us to understand, well, why John Money is not helpful. So before I put money against money, what I want to do is ask a question that ought to be asked first that almost no one else addresses. And this is, what is it to be a human being? If you look in any book on transgender theory, whether you come from what people would describe as the right or the left, almost no one begins with a definition of human being. I looked. <laughs> Here's, this is what I'm going to do for us today then. First, I want to address what is a human, and then I want to address, secondly, what are the ways of being human? Huh? First, we have to know the essence, and then we can know the modes of existence. So what does it mean to be a human? As I said, it's more than a little disconcerting that conversations about uh, this issue, gender and sexual preference, they almost always just move right along without discussing who we are. We cannot know what the varieties of a thing are unless we know what is the thing itself. How can I say this is a tree and this is a tree? Unless first I can tell you what distinguishes a tree from a flower and what distinguishes a tree from an animal. Unless I have some idea of what this thing is, even talking about its varieties makes zero sense. And so here then, what we need to do is first consider how there are perhaps variations on a theme. And um, just as Rachmaninoff has his themes on Paganini, if you were a music critic, you would be quite derelict in your duty to talk about Rachmaninoff's work without knowing who is Paganini and what did he write. Hmm? So we have to know then that there is an attempt very often that people overlook the essence because very often it's motivated by a kind of a ontological nominalism. It's united with this epistemological skepticism. They're not sure that human nature exists 
And they're unconvinced that if it exists, that we can know what it is. I like to compare this philosophical movement to the medieval role of what they called sappers. Sappers were those who would dig tunnels underneath the wall, and then they would fill these tunnels with dynamite. And so, similarly, this philosophical notion of nominalism and epistemological skepticism, well, they are digging underneath the bastions of traditional thought. And what they do is gender theorists ignite the dynamite of their theory through social activism. So the walls come tumbling down. Now, it would be an entirely another work for me to neutralize this explosive chemistry. And here, I'm just simply going to note that the Catholic Church believes in epistemological realism. We can know the essences of things. When we look upon reality, we can say something true about it. And likewise, this is not nominalism. When I name something, it can be an accurate name. It's not simply something I impose on reality. I receive it into myself, and my judgment can be true. These presuppositions are necessary, then, for us to move forward and to ask, what is a human being? And I would like to point out that the question, what is a human being, is really a taxonomic question. Taxonomy is the word that comes from the Greek taxis, which means order or arrangement. And then we have nomos, which is law. And so taxonomy, in the English understanding, is it's an arrangement of things according to some particular law or order. Although of recent vintage, the term taxonomy, it seems to have been coined in the 1800s by the French, the practice of arranging and naming the universe has very ancient roots. Genesis chapter 2, it tells us, I quote, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what would he call them. And the man called every living creature, and that was its name. John Paul II explains this passage in one of his audiences that became the theology of the body. He said, the created man finds himself in the first moment of his existence in search of his own being, and he looks upon the world looking for his own definition. Today, one would say, in search of his own identity. And so, in naming the animals, Adam is also asking him, what is my name? What does it mean to be a human being? Now, if we go back to the roots of what is a taxonomy, we can look into Aristotle's treatise on logic and on natural science. And they help us because he shows us what does it mean to define what is a thing. To define a thing, he says, we have to know its essence. And this means knowing the causes that make it to be what it is. What makes a tree to be this way? What makes a human to be that way? And he notes that all these causes can be reduced to four. And if, you, if you're familiar with philosophy, we know the four causes. We have the final cause. This is the end, the goal. There's the formal cause, that which makes the thing to have meaning and shape, the material cause, that out of which it's made, 
And then finally, the efficient cause, or the, the pushing, that which moves it from outside. I'd like to start with the material cause, because the way that the animal looks, just the look of a thing, can help to distinguish it from other things. And this was the work of the Swedish taxonomist, the famous Carl uh, Linnaeus. So we're probably familiar now with how animals are, they have a binomial, right? Homo sapiens. This is on account mostly of Carl Linnaeus, who is working with a largely Aristotelian framework. And one of the things that we notice is that Linnaeus in the in his time, which was the 1700s, 1600s, he actually coined the term mammal. Did you know that? So Linnaeus coins the term mammal. And what does mammal mean? Well, it comes from the Latin term mame. And it means literally the breasts or the udders. And you notice that these kinds of animals, that they had this exterior morphology, the shape, the females did. And so they were different from any animals that were, say, fish or birds, which don't have those. Now, what's interesting is that mammals included everything from humans and apes to elephants and even little bats. You, you wonder, how am I like these other animals? <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing to think about this, because very often we... we more consider ourselves, um, aside from this large group, the mammal, we think of ourselves as primates, right? This is very common now. And the primates are those that have certain kind of morphology of the skeleton. Typically, there are five fingers. And, um, and this is just looking at the, the exterior of the animal. And we notice then that human beings, we have certain physiological features that are like a certain kind of mammal and these might be orangutans or macaque monkeys. And this shows us, ah, okay, we fit into this category as well. What's interesting, though, is that when we say that a human being is homo sapiens, the sapiens, the knowing ape, this is something that doesn't have to do with our shape, our exterior shape, right? The sapiens, to know something, this is not, you, you cannot identify it just by looking at the exterior. So what makes us then the knowing animal? It's not just the way our teeth are arranged. <laughs> I always like to point out that we have the eyes of a predator. We don't have the eyes of prey. You know the eyes of prey, they're usually on the side because this allows the animal to have the greatest peripheral vision to see if something is dangerous in the bushes. If you ever look at the eyes, um, I always like to look at the eyes and the face of different animals so you can see what's going on in their mind. I saw this, uh, I was doing research, and I saw this YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the video was of these cheetah that were, that were, they were stalking a, an ostrich, you know, this large bird, and it has this head. And, um, and you look into the face and you can see what it's thinking and that it's not really thinking because there's the ostrich and its head is down in the grass and it looks up with big eyes. <laughs> and and you, can, you can tell that it was worried because it saw something moving in the bushes. And then, then they cut over and then you see the cheetah and the cheetah is like this. 
And then it sees the ostrich and it knows dinner is about to come. (laughs) But you look at this and you say to yourself, what is the difference between the ostrich and the cheetah and myself? Because if we, if we defined man only morphologically, only by our exterior shape, some people, almost as a joke, said that the human being is a featherless biped. The ostrich is a biped, right? It has two feet, but it has feathers. So what's the difference between us and the ostrich? Well, we don't have feathers. <laughs> well, this can't be quite it. First of all, because I said, the ostrich has eyes like prey. <laughs> We have eyes like the cheetah. We look forward and we're able to focus on one particular thing. We're able to know what that thing is and then to hone in on it. But it's not just our eyes that distinguish us. What else is it? Well, partly it's that we have this upright posture. Our spine is vertical. You notice that all the other animals, their spines are horizontal. And St. Thomas Aquinas, he points out that the horizontal spine is both a symbol and the reality of their interests in earthly things. Animals look down and they see food to eat, and they look up and they see the prey. That's all they're interested in, is very immediate interests. Human beings, though, because we have a vertical spine, we are able to look at objects in light of the horizon. And so I can see one particular person, and consider that person in light of the horizon, say, of the ocean. And then, because I'm still looking up, I can consider that one individual in light of the horizon of the stars. And so it's a symbol, in a way, that I have a greater dignity than the animals. They are concerned with particular objects that appeal to their appetites and their passions. We as human beings are able to consider things in light of their eternal consequences. But this still doesn't tell us exactly what makes a human being rational, or at least potentially rational. And to answer this, we have to consider, well, what is it out of which we are made? And traditionally, we would say that there's one aspect that is the material, the stuff, And then there's something else, which is the shape. And this inorganic material can be arranged in parts. And we can think of, say, the shape of a statue. The material is the marble, and then the shape is the way that the marble has been arranged. For organic material, there's an exterior shape, but there's also an interior something. There's something inside of it that makes it do something. If you look at a tree, it's not simply that the parts have been attached from outside, because you can start from a little seed, and the seed will start to grow up, and then the branches will start to form. And you say, there's something inside of whatever that seed was that makes it to activate from within. And you notice then that it's very different from a a object that is not alive. The marble will always retain its shape unless an exterior force comes and changes it. The arms get chopped off of the famous famous Venus de Milo. But the tree, the tree is going to continue to grow on its own. It has its own life force. It has a principle of change that still is also a principle of unity. What is this? Consider the human being. 
It has this principle, it has this life force, and that makes it, all the material that come together, makes it to grow in a very particular way that make it shaped, once it's mature, in a way that's stable, incidentifiable. Your fingers don't keep growing forever, right? Thank goodness. (laughs) They say that that your nose and your ears continue to, if not grow, at least stretch. (laughs) This is why old men have long ears. (laughs) And, And well, what does this tell us? This tells us that there's some interior principle that helps us to retain our shape, and this shape helps us to identify ourselves. So we might say there's an exterior shape of the body, but there's an interior thing that shapes us. And this is what we call the form or the soul. Here's what St. Edith Stein says. She says, living beings are capable of transforming and incorporating into themselves foreign material elements and bringing forth new structures of their own species. The formal principle which commands such a superior formative power is called the soul. And she says, the material structure that is molded is designated the body. This is probably familiar to all of us, but it's, willing, it, it's, it's worthwhile to recall because so often what a human being is, is forgotten. And what this shows us then is that living beings have these souls. It's true. Aristotle and Aquinas said that trees have a soul, but it's an organic soul. You chop the tree off, it dies, it doesn't live forever. Animals have this soul. It's something that makes them activated and alive. Unlike Descartes, we do not say that an animal is a meat machine. It's a living thing. It has a living principle. And then human beings have a soul, and the human soul is rational, which means that it is like God. God has thought. God has will. And likewise, so do we. And so our soul is one, like God, that will live forever. The consequence of this, then, is that the human being, made in the image and likeness of God, has a body that manifests the dignity of our soul. And it shows us that throughout our lifespan, that the body and the soul is a unified whole. The scholastic term is a composite. It is something that works together. It's not a ghost in the machine, but rather it is who you are, which is why when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, when we are in the state of grace, St. Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. You become an adopted child of God, and your body manifests the dignity that you have. Now, having considered at length what a human being is, now we can ask, what are the different ways that human beings exist? And here I'll start with John Paul II once again. He says, masculinity and femininity are two ways in which a human being created in the image of God is a body. Masculinity and femininity are two ways of a human being created in the image of God is a body, your somebody. Therefore, the Pope explains that being human in a certain way is prior to masculinity or femininity. Not only prior, he says, in the chronological sense, but also in the existential sense. It's prior by nature. Ontologically, as we have seen, the human status is 
primarily what he is. If you say, what is your identity? The first answer has to be, my identity is a human being. And then secondly, if you are in a state of grace, if you've been baptized, adopted by God, you say, my identity is a child of the Father. This is my primary identity, even before masculine or feminine, is I am a human being made in the image of God. I've been redeemed by Christ. That's the first thing he says chronologically and existentially. And therefore, when we start to talk about how something is a sex or a gender, then we always have to remind ourselves that this body-soul composite made in the likeness of God is that which becomes male or female. So we have to understand this priority. And here, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to look at the gender issue, particularly by looking at what John Money analyzed as the developmental sequence of what he called gender identity and role. Now, according to Money, some determinants of sex and gender are actually shared by the whole species, whereas others are more individual. And these things that are shared by the entire species, being human beings, these are related to reproduction. And we can start to notice that there are, of course, many different ways that organisms can reproduce. So some reproduce by sending spores into the air, right? There's some kind of um, trees, they just let go of their seed and they wander through, the spores attaches to something and it starts to grow. Others will reproduce, they actually can change genders. There are certain kinds of fish that are male sometimes and female another time. Very interesting, these hermaphrodite fish. But this is not the case for mammals. Mammals have a very specific way of reproducing, is that the male and the female of the, of the two join together in a single act. The male sperm enters the female ovum, and this begins a new organism. This is how mammals reproduce. We don't re- reproduce by spores. We don't put roots into the ground that pop up somewhere else. The male and female come together. This should be obvious. Now, ordinarily speaking, a person begins with either XX chromosomes or XY. And if you've taken basic biology, this is familiar to you because this is the case 99.9% of the time. People have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes, 99.9% of the time. Half of a healthy man's sperm will carry the X chromosome and half will carry the Y chromosome. The female egg always carries XX. According to the biologist Armand Leroy, he says that the chromosomal sizes of the X and the Y chromosomes are quite unequal. The female X, he says, is much larger than the male Y. And he says it reminds him of certain um, dance partners. He says, remember how, if you've ever seen some tango partners, the Argentinian, where there's this large, robust woman, and there's the small, dapper man. And he says that this is how the X and the Y are, because they actually coordinate similar to these dancers. He says, just as it is still the little man who helps to guide the couple, likewise, it is the Y chromosome that ends up determining whether or not the child will be male or female. 
In the rare case of a syndrome in which someone is born with an extra X chromosome, if someone has X chromosome, X chromosome, Y chromosome, that person will be male in external genitalia, they will be male in their facial features, and they will be able to reproduce as a male. What does this mean? Two X's are canceled out by the one Y. If you have three X's and one Y, male genitalia, male features, maybe a little taller, sometimes he's infertile, but still identifiable as a male. And what's interesting is that these are extremely rare cases. This is one out of 600 times for two X's and one Y, and it's one out of thousands of times for more. Now what's interesting is that if you have three X's in a row, XXX, female. So what does this mean? The presence of a single Y chromosome is going to determine male genitalia and male facial features. It's going to inform the entire structure of the body because the chromosomes, of course, this is part of our genetic structure, every single cell in your body has the XX or the XY. Every single cell in your body has this marker that makes you grow into this kind of morphological creature. Now, as I said, because it is going to then exist in every cell, what this means is that it's an indelible part of your genetic structure. No matter what accidents you go through, no matter what happens in your childhood or adulthood, you cannot change your genetic structure. It's impossible. The only time your genetic structure changes is when you die and your body starts to dissipate. Other than that, as long as you're alive, you retain those cells. So consequently then, we can say that this genetic structure creates what the Germans called a Bauplan. It's the body plan. It's what you are. It's the blueprint that helps your body to grow and to be shaped into this particular thing. It's this body plan, as I said, that makes your fingers grow to a certain length with a certain kind of proportionality. Your X and your Y chromosome influence all of your body parts. And so from this then, what happens is your X chromosomes or your Y chromosomes, when you're just a little embryo, they start to create within you the gonads. And if they're male, then they will start to activate more testosterone. And it's going to bathe this little embryonic body in testosterone, and eventually it's going to produce male genitalia. If it's two X chromosomes, this is going to produce ovaries, and this is going to bathe the body with some testosterone, but with more estrogen and progesterone, that which creates female genitalia. Once again, this may be obvious, but it's worth remembering because very often we forget. When we talk about gender issues and someone says, well, I, I feel as if I'm in the wrong body, we have to recognize what they are saying is, I have the wrong genes. My entire genetic structure, it's not just one part of my body. They're saying every single aspect of my genetic code is, is mistaken. You see? So, so we, have to, we have to remember how all of these biological elements are connected together. It's not simply whether or not a person has one kind of morphological difference. Oh, this woman has uh, this kind of nose, or this man has this kind of genitalia. Well, 
it's still in his genetic structure, what is happening. Here's what's very interesting is that Money says that sex differences that exist across these species, he says these are, these are basic differences between male and female. And we know that they are directly related to survival of the human species. When you have two X chromosomes, this is going to enable the person with two X chromosomes to basically do a few things. They can receive into themselves male sperm, and from this sperm, their egg will unite, and they can gestate, and then he says, and they lactate. He says, this is what the XX chromosomes do for all mammals. And so it's characterized then by these abilities. Whereas males, the XY, the Y chromosome, what it does is it enables the power of impregnation. It provides the male genitalia, which give it sperm in order to unite with the egg. And so together, he says, these powers constitute a basis for cooperation. On its own, if you just have two X chromosomes and the female morphology, the human species will not survive. And you can say the same about the male. And so what this shows us then is he says that this, this idea of intersexuality, of possessing ambiguous genitalia, a little bit male, a little bit female, this does happen, but it's at such a rate of one out of 6,000 births. Not very often. It's a very rare condition. And Money actually says that this is proof that the male-female dimorphism is natural. There's another point of evidence. He says that once a person in the womb with their genetic structure develops male or female genitalia, there's no going back. Even in the womb, at this little teeny rate where they're not fully mature, if you start to inundate them, already they have male or female genitalia, it's not going to reverse. You're not going to see male genitalia in the womb turn into something else, or the female into something else. It doesn't happen. And so there's a point of no return. And then finally, he notes that no person who has this intersexuality, ambiguous genitalia, because there was something wrong with the hormonal environment. No one who has that is fertile as both male and female. If a person has a cervix and a uterus, then he says that person will not be fertile as male. It's a female, and then there's a little difficulty. Or if they have a more developed male genitalia, he says they will not be fertile as female. So even there, nature is already showing that there's a distinction. Now, so far, Money's view is very congruent with Aristotle's. This Greek, well before modern biology, still recognized, and he says, the way that we define male and female is precisely about reproduction. Here's what Aristotle says. He says, male and female, quote, differ in the definition, the definition by this faculty. By definition, the male is that which is able to generate in another. The male goes out from himself to generate in another. He says the female, by definition, is that which is able to generate in itself by reception, and out of which comes offspring. That's, that's just the definition of it. If you're, if you're one who generates within you, you're not a male. That's how you define it. Now, what's interesting then is that this has, this definition does not have to do with politics, this does not have to do with does the person think that it's a male or a female. This is something that happens, you know, 
in all mammals. This is how mammals operate. This is how we identify the male bat from the female bat, the male dog from the female dog, which is the one that holds the child within and which is that which produces a child by moving out of itself. That's it. It's a very simple definition. Biologists employ these definitions all the time. And so this leads to a couple of very significant claims, and there's four. The first is that the, dif that the differentiation of male and female is on account of their physical difference. Their physical difference. I've already pointed out that although animals have kinds of souls, they, they, they don't have rational souls. And if animals are male and female, the difference is not because they don't have a rational soul. The difference is a physical difference. The second is that sexual differentiation, because it's a physical difference, this means that it can be measured by empirical means. Anything physical can be analyzed, you can measure it, you can know about it. The third point is that the decisive physical difference is not how much hair does a person have. I mean, sometimes it makes a difference, <laughs> but that doesn't make the difference definitively inter male and female. It's not the hair, it's not the size of the skeleton, it's not muscle mass, although males in general have more of all three, it's the genitalia. That's the key difference, according to Aristotle. And then finally, we notice that the genitalia are differentiated according to complementary function, which is for the reproduction and the continuance of the human race. So it's empirically known, it's differentiated by the genitalia, which is caused by the chromosomal structure, and the purpose has this reproductive end. Now, once we understand this, then we can start to talk about the roles of male and female. We say, okay, they're differentiated biologically, but then what is, what are they, how are they supposed to act? What is an appropriate action? And here, Money once again helpfully points out there's some things that are directly derivative from this biological difference. And so he points out that, say, with the onset of puberty, males, having had more testosterone in the womb, now they have even more testosterone in, in their teenage years, right? This is why they start to beat their chests and <laughs> run around. <laughs> this is why males take riskier choices and this is also why they have these kinds of um, behaviors. They have looked cross-culturally for males with the XY chromosome who have more testosterone, all of them. They will actually engage in more interest in objects that are toys that are objects versus objects that look more like creatures. Monkeys are like this too. They said, if you give a, uh, if you put two toys in front of a male monkey, and one is like a car or a shiny object, and one looks like a plush little um, uh, monkey doll, he always picks the, the shiny object. You put the, the two in front of the female monkey, she, she chooses the one that looks like the monkey. That males, because we have this notion of going out from ourselves, we are more interested in objects. <coughs> this, this shows part of our psychology, which is we objectify things. Whereas because the female gestates within herself, it shows that part of the psychology is more personal. She actually is more interested in persons. Now I know that if, if, if I showed you a photo, like, let's say I took a photo right now of, um, of all of us, and, and then I showed you the photo letter, the first thing you're going to do in the photo is look for yourself, 
right? This is the first thing we always do is, oh, where am I? <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that females will be able to pick out the faces more easily and be able to identify names and even like describe what is the emotional quality, what's happening, who's asleep, who's awake, are they happy, are they sad? Men can learn this too, but it takes more practice for us. We, we look at, we look at you know, the faces, and I, I don't remember the names. I, I don't know what they're thinking. And usually, it's, it's more objectifying. Are they beautiful or not? Are they interesting or not? It's something like that. Now, what this means is, if we look at this phenomenologically, then we start to understand more deeply how the gender role, how we act as male and female in society, is directly derivative and related to our biology. William May, who was a Catholic married man, recently passed away. He uh, worked very much in the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. And he provides a phenomenological, theological account of reproduction that helps us to understand maleness and femaleness. Here's what he says. It's, it's, um, it's a bit of a long quote, but it's really worth thinking about. He says, quote, In giving himself to his wife in the marital act, the husband releases millions of sperm, and they go in search of the ovum. Should his wife be fertile and ovum be present within her, one of his sperm may succeed in united and becoming one flesh. And in doing so, it brings a new being into existence. These facts illustrate, he says, how the male-female sexual difference is complementary. The man, as it were, symbolizes the superabundance and the differentiation of being because his sperm are differentiated into those that will generate a male child or female child. He says, from this we can see how the male, imaging God, emphasizes otherness, transcendence. He says, but the woman, she symbolizes the unity of being. Insofar as ordinarily, she produces only one ovum in a fertile cycle. And therefore, she emphasizes and symbolizes and manifests the inner side of being, being as it abides. And she says, in this way, the woman images God and emphasizes God's creativeness, God's interiority. We both image God, but differently. And this shows us about masculinity and femininity as a whole. The man emphasizes this exteriority, this going out. And women, they emphasize this withinness, this depth. And so because of this, going back to ancient times, women are associated with the earth. We say Mother Earth because the earth receives the rain. It receives the seeds. And from the material of the earth, things spring forth. Whereas man is more often associated with the sun, which is above us and comes down upon us in this way and is exterior from us. And these philosophical and biological views, phenomenology, is, well, it's confirmed by divine revelation. Of course, this is the book of Genesis. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs he closed up the place with flesh, and God made woman and brought her to the man. 
And the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the man called his wife's name Eve, for she was the mother of the living. Now, in classic medieval thought, including Aquinas, the first question was, why did God take a rib from Adam? And Thomas Aquinas points out, he says, because he wanted to show, first of all, that she is of the same nature as Adam. If he made woman out of another portion of soil, it could seem as if these are two separate species. Sometimes it seems that way. <laughs> you know, there's this book that was popular before the gender theory movement really got started. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. That, that implies not only are we different species, that we're aliens to each other. <laughs> but we know it's not men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We say man and woman are from Eden. And so first, we have the same human nature. We're both human beings. We both image God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is why the rib? And St. Thomas Aquinas says, if God took woman from Adam's foot, it would seem that she was below him. If he took from the head, it would seem that she was above him. They think this very often anyway. <laughs> he says he took from the rib because this is closest to the heart to show that they are equal dignity, that man should love her, and that this is his primary role of having this equality of difference. Now, my, my question was, why did God put Adam into sleep? Why is Adam asleep when this operation is taking place? And of course, if you're a doctor, your first response will be, you have to put someone under anesthetics before you perform open-heart surgery. <laughs> I would like to note that God hides from Adam the formation of Eve. What this means is that God, in having Adam asleep, God is showing that he is the creator of human nature. God shapes man and woman. We do not create human nature. You know, the term manipulate comes from manus, the hand. To manipulate something is to put your hands upon it and to shape it according to your desire. When God puts Adam asleep and he takes the rib and he shapes Eve, he says, woman is the work of my art, the work of God's hands, not man's hands. Notice how different that is from the Greek story of Pygmalion. Remember you recall that Pygmalion was a sculptor and he was making this marble sculpture of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And this sculpture was so beautiful that he wished that she was alive. So Aphrodite comes down and she miraculously makes this marble sculpture become a woman. And it was called Gal uh, Galatea. Now, the interesting thing about that is this, this sort of, uh, symbolizes how a, a man can idealize a woman, but what is her reason for existence? To be an object of desire. She's the goddess of love. Her purpose is simply to satisfy these desires. This is not the Catholic way. We say God shapes the woman. God gives her life. God creates her dignity. And so this shows us about all human beings, we should not try to manipulate them into existence. We cannot change a genetic structure of a single human being. 
We cannot change, rightly, their exterior morphology. This is what they have been given as the gift of their life. So this is one reason why Adam was asleep. Another reason why Adam was asleep is that it shows that he has to go outside of himself. You see, when someone is asleep, they're in the state between life and death. And so his conscious mind goes outside of his sense perceptions. His, his conscious mind goes outside of his imagination. And therefore, it shows that the going out of his body to become this, the material of this woman, this is this, the role of man, is to be a gift to other people. You see, we have to go, men have to go beyond our imagination, we have to go beyond our senses, we have to give ourselves literally so other people can live. This is the role of human beings, but particularly part of the role of men, and it's directly related to the mode of reproduction. It has to be a gift, one that comes from the strength and its material, but God is the one who forms it, that makes it to be alive and to be whole. John Paul II says this, the knowledge of man passes through masculinity and femininity. The knowledge of man passes through masculinity and femininity. These are two complementing ways of being a body, two complementary dimensions of self-knowledge and of being conscious of ourselves. And therefore, he says, this passage in, in Genesis shows that femininity finds itself before masculinity. And likewise, masculinity confirms itself through femininity. And so, what we find then is that when God creates us, we still have to learn in a way how to be masculine and feminine. I've heard people pull me aside just recently, I was in Rome, and, um, and I was talking with some of my, my friends, and there's a lay woman there, very concerned about the state of the world, and she says, Father, what we need to do is emphasize the role of men. We have to say that men need to be fathers, they need to be leaders, they should be providers. She says, one of the biggest problems in society is that men don't know how to be men. Well, I've been pulled aside by other friends, and they've said, you know, the problem is that we're not showing the goodness of motherhood. That women think that they have to be economically successful in order to be dignified. That women aren't recognizing the beauty of the femininity that God gave them. And so we need to emphasize the goodness of woman and motherhood. And they're both right. You see, if we get an error about men, it's an error about woman. And if we have an error about woman, it's an error about man because they're complementary. And if we have an error about human nature, everything is destroyed. St. Paul says in Romans chapter one, that when people lost sight of God, when they became atheist and secular, this was the source of sexual corruption. Because when we forget who we are made in the image of, then we start to think that we make each other in our own image. And so masculinity and femininity is destroyed in the face of secular atheism. And isn't that what we see now? We can't emphasize father. We can't emphasize mother. People try to put them into combat with one another. 
And the result is we should all be like machines that are shaped and created by some powerful state. There are many other things I could say, but one thing I want to point out to bring ourselves back to money is that modern gender theorists have criticized him because as we have seen, a lot of his understanding of biology is correct. And here's what one modern gender theorist has said. She said that she felt that he betrayed his principles. She says, on money's biological model, heterosexuality can be the only proper outcome of a naturalized process of development. And therefore, non-heterosexuality is produced as abjected, as deformed. And I think that she's right, that ultimately what John Money wanted to do was to normalize this sort of gender-bending theory, but the biology wouldn't let him entirely. He was too good a scientist to be coherent with his political views. And so what this may be of interest is that we notice that he practiced not his biology, but he practiced his ideology. And this led to a very tragic case. And perhaps this is one of the ways in which money lost a lot of reputation among gender theorists. And nowadays, very few people follow him by name, even though they follow his gender theory. And this is because of the tragic case of a young man named David Reamer. He was born in 1965, an identical twin. And back then, their names were Brian and Bruce. Well, Bruce had an accident during an attempted circumcision, and his male genitalia were entirely destroyed after eight months. Distraught, his parents were looking for solutions. They actually saw John Money on Canadian television and he was talking about gender fluidity and saying that in the end, the biology of chromosomes didn't make very much of a difference, that you could shape people according to whatever desire you had, and you can teach them, and they could grow up perfectly happy. Well, the parents were hoping this was true because their poor son had suffered from this surgical accident. And so they talked with money, and for him, it was the perfect opportunity to prove his theory. Money recommended an inflexible regimen of pumping full this little boy of progesterone, estrogen, in order to help him to develop female-seeming genitalia. He went, underwent surgery to remove all visible elements of male genitalia. And as this little boy was growing up, he was always referred to as a girl. He was always taught that he was a girl. He was dressed as a girl. And as he grew up, he would regularly go to the psychologist where they would try to re-emphasize his femininity. It's the perfect test case for this theory. Well, what happened? As time went on, he didn't feel like a little girl. And he didn't know why. They called him Brenda. He had the clothing. Everything, everything he did was as if he was a girl. And as he got older, he got a little bit bigger. He's slightly larger than the other girls. He started to have a little bit of facial hair, not as much as his twin brother. He discovers that his twin brother was identical. 
And he says to himself, identical twin means that you have to be the same sex. And he realized that he must have been a male at birth. And so he asked his parents what happened, and they explained, well, there was this accident, and so we've been trying to raise you like a girl. He asked them, he said, I never want to see John Money again. He asked, when he was a young teenager, that he go on testosterone treatments. This way he can at least hopefully develop something as a male. They gave him these testosterone treatments. They tried to undo the damage that had already been done. He ended up having surgery to have something of male genitalia, and he took the name David. Eventually, he underwent even more reconstructive surgery, and he was married. Unable to have children, he adopted. When David found out that for decades money had been trumpeting his own life as the perfect example of money's theory, David went public with his suffering. And he told the world that money was not telling the truth about the success of this surgery and hormonal therapy. Well, because he was going against one of these renowned sex therapists, one who everyone was seeing as the prime godfather of the gender theory, David, of course, came under great attack, and he had anxiety, and then his wife started having difficulties as well. Two days after she said that she wanted to separate and no longer be married, he killed himself. Now, we know that we can't base science on a single example, but the book that was written about poor David Reamer helps us to see the truth about human beings. It was called, As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl. And what we find is that, unfortunately, the suicidal tendencies of people who are transsexual or who identify as transgender, well, this is very common. Clinical studies show that they have a suicide rate of 19 to 25%. One review looked at 40,000 volunteers, and they found that transgender persons report a higher rate of suicide attempts than any other group except for women who identify as lesbian. It's a tragic situation, and I think the solution to a tragedy is not another tragedy. We shouldn't tell ourselves these myths about human beings and pretend that we are not our bodies, that our chromosomes and genes make no difference. We shouldn't say that our way of living in the world is somehow arbitrary and up to only our only choice. Rather, we have to go back to the very beginning, go back to Eden, and see God's plan for man and woman. And in light of God's plan, recognize that the body has been redeemed by the incarnation. And this is why if the present pope has condemned gender theory, in a certain way, the first pope did as well. St. Peter wrote, we do not follow cleverly designed myths. Rather, we speak about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And the truth about Christ is that he was God in the flesh. And Jesus' own body redeems our bodies. Sometimes we are broken. Sometimes we have difficulties understanding ourselves or understanding the world. But through the body of Christ 
and through the motherhood of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we can come to understand ourselves and our role in this world. And so, for that young man who came to me all those years ago and asked how I could help him, well, my question was, how can I help him? What can I do? And I think the first response would be, I need to speak about Adam and Eve, about their fall, and about the redemption of the human being in Jesus Christ. Thank you.